There's a line in that song that deeply touched me as I look at my own life, and that line was where it says, you took rags and you made them beautiful. And sometimes I look at my own life, and I look back across the time, and I see how I've been stitched together, piece by piece, because we get torn apart. And once in a while, it looks like something that'll hold, and then once in a while, a stitch comes loose. But I know that it's God's love that has made that work. So let's go to God in prayer. God, I thank you for the word that you bring to us today. May our hearts be open. May our lives receive the word, the power, the guidance, and the challenge that you have for us today. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I was about 19 and away at college before I actually ever went to my first classical um, concert. I was pretty excited about it because I, I'm kind of a small farm town girl. I uh, grew up in Brawley, California, which is down the Imperial Valley. And I grew up on a hillbilly rock and roll fusion playlist that I uh, uh, played out in my backyard in Brawley on my transistor radio. Broadcasting from KROP, Crop Country, 1300 AM station. And uh, every night around 5.30, as the sun was going down, my sister and I would be out dancing to the latest from Santana. And um, then it would play this one song always at the end of, and because it went off broadcasting at 6 o'clock. And so that to us was the end of the play day. So I, I was very excited about going to this classical concert. Like I was going to really get some culture now. I was away at college. And I thought, what should you wear to a concert? So I thought, you dress up. And so I wore a black skirt, white shirt, and black ballet slippers. I thought, this is what a person wears to a concert. I went to the concert and realized that actually I looked exactly like the symphony. And uh, you could wear many other things if you were actually attending. And I could have gotten in backstage and, you know, become the drummer. So when, um, but the symphony etiquette is a whole nother, a whole nother world. And nobody mentioned symphony etiquette to me. I wasn't aware of that. So when in Beethoven's Seventh Symphony which was absolutely beautiful, I thought, and, 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 and just enough time to appreciate it and not get bored of it. it it's, the music stopped. And I thought, going back to my KROP, Crop Country days, that meant the song was over. And so I began to clap enthusiastically. And I have to tell you that there was an audible gasp by the woman next to me. And I'm pretty sure she passed out. <laughs> and the man in front of me turned to me with a piercing gaze of disdain for my heritage. And my friend leaned over and whispered, it's not over yet. Don't clap in between. And I was scared to death after that. Of I would wait to see somebody else and I would always go like that. I can't help but think that if the Acts, the book of Acts, were a movie today, or it was a symphony, 
it would have actually ended all its movements at the few verses before our text today. The verses before our text have this happening. Jesus returns to God, keeps his promise, and sends the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people uh, are baptized, fade into sunset. It's a wrap. Let me applaud. But Luke won't leave us there. He doesn't leave us hanging there. He leans over and whispers, it's not over yet. Don't clap in between. There's more work to do. Instead, he answers this question, what does it look like when the Holy Spirit shows up and is in charge? It's a vision of a newborn church as a place where the deepest human longings for God and community and the basic provisions were being met. Well, the text paints the picture of an immediate embodiment of this Pentecost enthusiasm. This is what he has to say in Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. So in this particular scripture, our text, we're, we are to turn our gaze towards the church. So my question for you today is, where do you see yourself in the story? It's, it, it would be very interesting. As you automatically think of the story, who do you see yourself as in that story? Are you one of the thousands that came to believe that day? Do you see yourself hearing that story and coming? Or are you one that has been kind of going along with the movement all along and now you're here just as, as a person who's in awe of what all the apostles were doing? It's kind of an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon that we do as preachers. When we preach the gospel texts, quite often we equate the people in the pew, you all, with the disciples. That's where we kind of line you up. But when we preach from Acts, the inclination is to identify all the church members with the group of receptive believers who composed a newly formed explosive church. But what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look at this text from Acts from a gospel approach, which means I'm asking you to consider yourself being one of the apostles in which all the others were looking at who were doing signs and wonders and all the others were in awe of them. You're not new believers, most of you. At least I've seen you here for a year or 17 months since I've been here. So you're, if you're not the new believers, you're the apostles. You're the ones who now know. And seeing yourself in this way as an apostle rather than as one of the new believers, it might challenge you really into a greater sense of um, your calling as a spiritual leader. 
because you're at that age where you are a spiritual leader, at least you're called to be. And as you identify with Peter and the other disciples, you might begin to see how you have been empowered with all that you need to serve the Lord. You have been given all the gifts that you could possibly need to begin your residency as a spiritual leader in this place. And you might begin to see how this spirit that lives within you, this spirit that compels you forward to say something, to do something, is the Holy Spirit inspiring a radical and hopeful change into the people around you. All members are ministers. You've heard that before. And in the Bible, it says that all of us, we belong to the priesthood of all believers. But have you ever thought about what that means? Do you know a priest comes early and stays late? Do you know that a, a priest gets everything ready for those who come seeking? Do you know that, that a priest has a, a sense of priority? And I'm not talking about any, any uh, faith priest. I'm talking about a biblical understanding of what a priest is. And of course, the scriptures say we serve the greatest high priest the, from the order of Melchizedek, and that is a whole other sermon. But that Jesus was the high priest, and we are the body of Christ. We are Jesus now in the world. We are the priests. So it, it's not setting us apart for fame and adulation and great wisdom. It's setting us apart for the hard work, the labor that it takes in the kingdom of God. Today's scripture, the, the one we just read, supports this confession, and it's a reminder in a way to all of us that your spirit-filled leadership makes a difference in and beyond the life of the church. Your spirit-filled leadership is to come and worship here, to be equipped here, and then to go out with that spirit making a difference in, in the world. And Acts offers, now here's a very interesting thing. I hope it's a new idea for you. Acts offers this wonderful vision of a community committed to mutual support. It's a group that's gathered uh, in one heart and one soul in which no one claimed private ownership of any possessions and everything was held in common. Gosh, you could just say at the end of it, day by day they spent so much time and they were generous and wonderful and they lived happily ever after. You could just add that tagline to it. It sounds so wonderful. Where did we go wrong? That's what we're constantly asking ourselves. But here's the thing. In the Hellenistic literature of the, that time, one of the literary devices that they used was they always presented a utopian picture. And that utopian picture of what the ideal world would look like always was predicated on the sharing of all personal property was the primary characteristic. So what if this isn't necessarily talking about the the community that that was because this community only lasts for about a chapter 
And then that community starts fighting and they're, you know, they're, they have a pecking order. And so, so what if it's not actually talking about the community that was formed, but it's actually talking about the community that we are all to move towards all of our, all of our days that in all of the history, this is the movement towards this picture. If it, if it seems like in Acts the depiction of the church is idealized, it's likely that rather than being a misleading effect, it registered with the worshipers who were hearing it and reading this of that time as a vision for what it could be if we all followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. What could a church look like? And then, so with that in mind, go back, and what could that church look like? It's a church that's devoted to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship. It's, it's a church that gathered regularly, and then they went home, and they were happy for what they had, and they were happy for where they were. They weren't always thinking about where they needed to be and what they could have. They were satisfied with life and they were satisfied with what they had and that made it easier to share. And it also, they had a conviction in their heart that they had enough. So, and there were people that had nothing. And so they, all of their possessions, you see, it all boils down to they were crazy madly in love with Jesus. And this crazy madness that comes with being in love with Jesus, it nurtures this sense of trust, this sense of well-being, this sense of understanding that where our feet are planted today, we're in a good place to do what we need to do. You know, the primary agenda of Acts at this point in Acts, and this is just at the very beginning of Acts, we're in Acts 2. The primary agenda of Acts at this point is to make very, very clear the connection of the birth of the church and the divine work of the Spirit. That the church and the Spirit are divinely connected. That this, this entity, and I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about this entity, we are the church, the followers who come together to make a difference in the world, to change the world in the name of Christ, that this is not our idea, that this is the idea of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can invest in it, we can make it better, we can work hard for it, we can do all of those things, but we can't defeat it. It's not our doing. We can certainly knock it around, we can do all kinds of things to it, but the church, the people who belong to God and whose love and, and commitment is for Christ, you can't get rid of it. It's here. It's here to stay. And then I want you to notice that the response of the people throughout these chapters is awe and amazement. When was the last time that you left church awed and amazed? at what your fellow apostles had done, or what you, what God was doing inside of you. The God of Israel is showing once again that God's covenant faithfulness, that promises that God made way back at the very beginning of recorded history, 
those promises that are, are, we would be numbered like grains of sand or like stars in the sky, that all of that would come to fruition and that this picture of the church was possible and we could move towards it. All of that, God is fulfilling that prophecy. And how do we see that in the church? How is God fulfilling that prophecy in the church? And I maintain that God is fulfilling that prophecy as our children learn in Sunday school to love and that they are loved. And in the nursery when they're held and touched and they have their needs met in our adult spiritual classes or our events or our worship as we struggle to learn and grow in our faith. This is God's covenant faithfulness to us in our stewardship and in our uh, uh, mission, all those things are shaping and forming our heart. That's God's promise being lived out inside of us. Our fellowship and our, our, our handing out a love kit and a decision to honor your commitment to the body of Christ in this particular place as a decision to listen to the Holy Spirit guide you even when it's inconvenient and when it's unconventional and when it's controversial. The willingness to do that is God fulfilling that covenant. The embodiment of church that we find here in Acts represents the people's discernment in response to the spirit of what the church is called to be about. They, they are listening to the Holy Spirit and they are called to do and be this. You know, I feel like too often we forget this calling. I really do, especially if you've been in the church for a really long time. It disturbs me when I'm in meetings and we are so frantically worried about something and we're trying to figure it out and we're squeezing the life out of it and we're trying this trick and that trick and this hook and that hook. It disturbs me that we never talk about the Holy Spirit. How that we don't ask ourselves, so let's step back. Where is God in this? How is God leading us? And I know actually that it's in the minds of everybody there, but we don't talk about it and say it. And I feel as though sometimes it's not, uh, um, maybe we don't believe that it's possible, that God is actually a part of this mundane conversation, whatever that is about putting a new roof on, or, or calling a new pastor, or, or all of the business that we go about, that God is not actually a part of that. And that I do not believe. I believe that God is a part and can be the heart of everything that we in, uh, seek to do. The discernment of the movement of the Holy Spirit is our primary function. And what I mean by that is our primary function is to listen and obey. Listen and obey. That's what I think our primary function is, to go where the Spirit leads us. But not to do this in a casual way or in a whimsical way or in a, this is what I heard God say and therefore way. We have so many gifts to embody the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We, we can test and discern with all of the historical and biblical tools that we have of discernment that we've been provided and with the understanding that God has directed as a primary source of revelation and discernment Jesus Christ as lived out in this community, in the community of faith, 
All of this to say that we have been called and led by the Holy Spirit to embody the Holy Spirit. We can discern that, but we can't leave it out of the mix. We just can't. To embody the gifts of the Holy Spirit and then to carry out the sacred marching orders of the Holy Spirit as given to us by Christ, to be able to actually do the job that we've been given. We are to be the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's feet and hands and voice and vision, just as Jesus was. In verse 43, it tells us, awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. So this is what I want to leave you with. Remember, you're not the, you're not the newbie in this story. You're not the just came, just heard in this story. You're the apostles in this particular movement. And if you aren't in awe because of the many signs and wonders that are being done by you and by your fellow apostles, then I, I think that it's simply a moment for you not to question whether it's being done, but to question if you're positioning yourselves to see it and to hear it. And then plug in and listen and be aware and join. Have courage, as the writer Sue Monk Kidd reminds us, to be fully human, fully myself, to accept all that I am and all that you envision. This is my prayer. Walk with me out to the rim of life beyond security. Take me to the exquisite edge of courage and release me to become. The word of the Lord.